I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and along with my co-host, Leanne Daly, we'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Donna Mills is an actress and producer who began her television career in the mid-60s with a recurring role on The Secret Storm and appeared on Broadway in Woody Allen's Don't Drink the Water. She made her film debut opposite Bo Bridges and Martin Sheen in The Incident and then starred for three years in the Emmy-nominated soap Love is a Many Splendored Thing before she played the role of Toby Williams in the cult film Play Misty for Me. She went on to appear in many TV movies and such hits as The Six Million Dollar Man, Hawaii Five-0, The Love Boat, Chips, and Fantasy Island. But Donna is best known for her most notable and iconic role as the scheming vixen Abby Cunningham on the primetime soap Knott's Landing. She became a three-time winner of the Soap Opera Digest Awards, causing Interview Magazine to call her performance one of the strongest and most fascinating characters in pop history. Mills launched her own production company and began producing and starring in numerous TV movies, and in 2014, she joined the cast of General Hospital, for which she won a Daytime Emmy. She also appeared in the Academy Award-nominated film Joy. So let's rewind to the beginning and say it forward with timeless television icon Donna Mills. Before we start, I want our listeners to know you're so beautiful and just I'm overwhelmed by how pretty you are. just want to say that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Get that out in the air. Well, that's a good start. You look fantastic. You're so pretty. very sweet. Okay, now I've said what I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Donna Jean Miller, Chicago, Illinois. Wow. Yep. Which neighborhood? The Northwest Side. It was called Norwood Park. Okay. I love Chicago. It's such a beautiful city. I love it, but I haven't been there in years. Uh, I don't have any family there anymore, so I don't really have any reason to go back. And I certainly wouldn't go back in the winter. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I have never been there in the winter, but I did that architectural tour. They have this architectural tour on the water. Oh, yeah? And you you can't imagine how beautiful Chicago is until you actually go to Chicago and see it from the inside and look at the structures and the buildings that are— Yeah. No, it's a great city, but I couldn't wait to get out. (laughs) (laughs) So how'd you do that? Like, what was the... Well, I started out as a dancer. I'd studied dance, ballet from the age of five, and uh, it's all I wanted to do. I actually, as a dancer, did the first national company of My Fair Lady. Wow. Yeah. I went to see it recently in New York, you know, the revival of it. It wasn't as good as the original. (laughs) (laughs) Where did that come from, the desire to be a dancer? Is it familial? I don't know. My mother had been a dance teacher kind of early in her life. And uh, she always, she and my father loved to dance, ballroom dance. And so I don't know. She put me in, you know, ballet classes you do with most little girls. But Mm -hmm. I just loved it. And it was all I wanted to do. From five. Wow. But you went to university. How did that fit I only in? went for a year. Oh, okay. Yeah. I actually never finished my first year because I got mononucleosis. <laughs> oh, God. Wow. That was Bummer. very common back yeah. in the day, yeah. wasn't and it? And they called that the kissing disease, the kissing, right? Kissing, yeah. Sickness. I don't know how I got it. Mm. Donna. <laughs> 
Is that a wink, wink or a true statement? Uh, Yes, that's a wink, wink. Um, (laughs) But so uh, I, you know, had to go home and lie in bed for a while. And then I could have gone back and, you know, taken my finals and stuff like that. But I never did because I knew I wasn't going to go back again. I didn't I didn't want to. I just I basically wanted to get to New York. Did you audition in Chicago or did you go to New York? What was the... No, no. I auditioned in Chicago first because uh, I had studied all the way up, you know, until college and that. Um, But afterwards, I wanted to study more seriously. I studied with kind of a local ballet teacher. I wanted to study with, uh, they were called uh, Bentley Stone and Walter Cameron. They were the teachers in Chicago. And so I studied with them, and I worked during the day. I worked at Popular Mechanics magazine. <laughs> what were you doing at Popular Mechanics? A secretary. The worst secretary ever. <laughs> but I worked for a salesman who was out of town most of the time, and he would leave, I think it was called a dictaphone then, and you would listen to it and type the, well, it was a good thing he wasn't there because it would take me like, 20 tries to get one letter done. <laughs> Sounds like me. <laughs> My mother said, learn how to type. And I said, well, if I do that, then somebody's going to want me to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to know how to do way. that. To this right. day, I still do this, you know. Yeah. No, that my mother, too, wanted me to learn. I learned how, I did learn how to type. But the but the dictation thing, the shorthand, yeah, I couldn't so do that. Did you study acting, too, while you were in Chicago studying dance, or did that come later? It came later. It came once I went to New York. My mother had wanted me to take dramatic lessons in Chicago and that, but I was bound and determined that a dancer I was going to be, and so acting didn't appeal to me. So um, My Fair Lady, was that the first big production? For you? Probably the first thing that I did, which it was a convention kind of thing down on Navy Pier. And we danced in a thing and and we were combined with like a circus. There were the circus performers and then there was this chorus of girls who danced for like the opening and the this and the that. So that was the first kind of big thing that I got. And I, then I actually didn't do um, dance for a while because I I was looking for auditions to for dance things, and there weren't any at a certain time, and there was a audition for a play at the Drury Lane Theater. And so I went, oh, okay, I'll go on audition. And we still in Chicago? Yeah. yeah. And I got it. I got Come Blow Your Horn. Did wow. you have any training, or you just said, I'm going to try this? And I'd done some plays in high school. But no training at all. But you probably had technical skill because you were a dancer, so you knew how to show up on a stage. And- yeah, there must have been something because Come Blow Your Horn is a comedy. I didn't even know it was a comedy. And I didn't know that the character that I played, Peggy, was the funniest character in the play. So all during rehearsals and that, I'm rehearsing and we're doing it and everything. And I said, this is kind of boring. There's no music. <laughs> Opening night. It's so funny. I came on stage. I said the first couple of lines, got these huge laughs. And I went, oh, 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 this is fun. (laughs) And I mean, that's what kind of, and I I went to um, Stone Cameron then, you know, for my dance class or whatever. And I told them I was doing the play. And they said, oh, that's too bad. I said, why? They said, you won't be a dancer now. 
you'll oh. be an actress. Wow. I said, no, I won't. That's just, no. I'm. But they were right. Wow. <laughs> How lovely, though, to just stumble into that path. Yeah. You got paid for that. Oh, yeah. It was a very professional, good theater. So I mean, stumbled probably into the best in Chicago. The best theater in Chicago, for sure. Yeah. Aside from like Steppenwolf and the, the more sort of avant-garde theater. Right. Drury Lane was like a, right. like a world-class theater in Chicago. Yeah, yeah, it was like like a good regional theater. Mm. And yeah, so, you know, I didn't realize at the time how lucky I was to get this role. And then I did a couple more plays there, too. It was... Um, did your parents come see you and come blow your horn? Oh, yeah, yeah. So they were supportive of what you were doing? Yeah, they always were. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think they realized there was no deterring me. Right. You know, so they didn't try. Mm-hmm. I just, it was what I was going to do. It's very you, serendipitous, too. I mean, to just w- sort of wander in, get your first job, <laughs> you know, have your first interview, get your first job, and then continue to be working yeah. and getting paid. Yeah. Did, so there was no real, uh, in your business, I would use the word struggle. So many people in your business struggle to find work. You didn't struggle to find work. You, at that point, will no, keep going I, to see whether you ever did struggle. I, I kept kind of going from one thing to another uh, somehow some way i finally quit my job at um <laughs> popular mechanics magazine <laughs> god you weren't good at it anyway <laughs> yes i was lucky in that i never after that job had i never was a waitress or a do you know what I mean? I never had to do that. Right. I always mm-hmm. kind of supported myself on what I made in the business. And did you get representation after Come Blow Your Horn? Or was that, did you have representation? Like, how did that part work? I remember how I got an agent in New York, but I don't remember how I got an agent in Chicago. Mm-hmm. You know, but, I, but I'm sure that I did. Or maybe I didn't and I just went on ca- casting calls. You know, because I have a paper that comes out and says what's casting. and Yeah. You know. I, I would go. And I would go on the dance ones, too. The dance ones were awful, though, because there were so many dancers to go mm-hmm. out for each mm-hmm. thing. So mm-hmm. I felt so there was like, negotiating. There was no negotiating going on. They'd hire you. They'd say, this is what we're paying. Pretty you'd much. You'd say, okay, thank you. And then you'd go off and you were satisfied and you were working. And Yeah, pretty much at that point. Mm-hmm. And in Summerstock, I danced in the chorus. So that was that was kind of a, this is what you get. It was an equity minimum or something like that, and that's what you got. So you started off, how old are you now at this point? <sighs> Probably 20. So you're ba- basically a baby. Yeah, yeah, because I went to school for a year and then, you know, was taking class, dance class and working and that. So this is, you know, this is 20, 21 in there. Yeah. So did you make a decision at some point not to be a dancer anymore and to follow in being an actor? Not really. Again, it kind of happened after I went to New York. I knew I wanted to go to New York. I was looking for a way to get there. And I'd worked with some kids in summer stock from New York and became very friendly with them. So they were back there and I was still in Chicago and I was like, (laughs) I want to get to New York. And I was um, modeling at um, an auto show, you know, kind of industrial work. Yes, kind of standing there with the car, you know, (laughs) which was that was the worst job I've ever had because the men who came to the auto shows thought that the girl went with the car. (laughs) (laughs) 
and they setting yourself up for a lot of grief with the right. guys. Right. I, I mean, it was constant kind of things you didn't want to hear from these guys, mm-hmm. you know. And yeah. It was awful. I hated it. Was that the precursor to the Me Too movement? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think so. so. You're like a starlet. You're considered like, I re- I grew up in Indiana, and the, the girls who would come to the auto shows or to the Indianapolis 500 were, quote, unquote, starlets. And it was like <laughs> not who you were. you really were. Right. I hated kind of that presumption on their part. But the nice part was the... Second company I worked for was English Ford. And then English Ford was doing uh, an auto show in New York. And they said, Oh, we'd like to, would you like to come to New York? We'll pay for your airfare and everything. I went, Yes. There you go. Now you found a <laughs> yep. way to get to New York. Yep. That was my way to get to New York. They paid the fare and they paid money, you know, when I was there. So I had a little bankroll to start out with. And I was cool. And I roomed with one of the girls that I'd worked with in uh, Chicago at, uh, in Summerstock. She was a singer, and uh, and so we got an apartment together. And Where'd was, you live in New York? It was on uh, 23 West 76th. It was a lovely block. Like the all hottest beautiful. part of town in New York now. Yeah, I love that beautiful old brownstones, lovely. Yeah. Um, our apartment, however, was the ground floor apartment behind which lived many, many, many feral cats. <laughs> oh. <laughs> So it wasn't always so nice. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the hard part in New York was when you went, when you go to an audition for dance, as I said, there's many, many dancers there and they're all standing around and I'm like new, probably kind of cute. And the other, I'd walk in and I'd say, where do we change? <laughs> Nobody would tell me. Because <laughs> nobody's going to help you. <laughs> no, they, they, were, they, no. Would, they would walk away and I would go, but, but, but help me. <laughs> So I got some dance roles, mostly industrial shows. I did the um, the Chevy show, which traveled all over the country. It was like a huge musical, except the star was the Chevy. <laughs> You're saying that they actually had shows that oh, featured yeah. cars? Oh, oh sure. absolutely. It's like a consumer trade show. Mm-hmm. And so, and it t- was introducing the new model, the nineteen. 19- 50, whatever, 60, whatever model, the new model, they would have these big shows that went out every year. And what did what did the show have, like a plot and the actors in it? And, or Many, was it just dan- mostly dancing mostly around the Mostly dance, music, original music, orchestra. Well, like I, I said, heard such like a, a Broadway show. It, the production value was that great. And the car sat in the middle of the stage. Yes, and, and there were different ones. You know, I mean, they'd have different models and they mm-hmm. have the convertible and they'd have, you know, and much dancing around the car. And So know. the cars would change out during the mm-hmm. show? Oh, yeah. I never yeah. heard of it was that. All staged. Did you it know was, about this? I definitely went to those shows when I was. Oh my god, I feel like a I little knew girl. Yeah. I know most people don't uh, have never heard of them. If you're from a place like Indianapolis, you've seen that stuff because you know <laughs> right. that's the kind of place that it would go to, and it would be partially about the consumers uh, in the in the city, and it would be partially about the dealers and sort of yeah. showcasing. I believe that Quincy Jones composed music for the car companies in this capacity. It was big. I mean, everything about it was big. The orchestra, the, you know, who did it, everything. As a matter of fact, on that show, believe it or not, Valerie Harper was a dancer in the chorus also. And she was the dance captain. Wow. (laughs) I've never heard of this. I feel like I missed like a whole industry. (laughs) 
<laughs> it was fun. They did it for some clothing industry stuff, too. They did it for a lot of different... So you got this job, which you were getting paid for. Yeah. And you traveled around the country. Those jobs paid very well. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, and traveled around the country. Yeah. Did you have speaking parts, or was this mostly about dancing? It was about dancing. It seems to me that they also had, like, some star or semi-star or somebody who would maybe have a scene about the car or something like mm -hmm. that and sing the lead and, you know. Yeah, it was part of the contract that they would do. The person would have an ad campaign that they would do on the radio and on television. A lot of it was live. Yeah. It was like endorsement, but it was a very active form of yeah. endorsement. How yeah. long did this go on for that you did then? Probably a couple of years. Wow. In, in the meantime, and that would go, I mean, that would be like a month and you would go off for a month. In between that, I was auditioning for other things, and one of the first things that I got was the Woody Allen play, Don't Drink the Water, which I played <laughs> the sultan's wife. And you never saw me because I had a burqa and a hole. <laughs> <laughs> and I understudied the lead uh, girl, the ingenue, but I never got to go on. So you had this kind of almost stock and trade of being the straight man, female, comedic performer. Yeah. yeah. Sexy, funny, almost by accident. Yeah. And then I, I actually, jumping forward a little bit, when I did a comedy out here, one of the first things that I did was a, a series comedy. The, when that went off the air, I was offered every comedy pilot that came along. I mean, I would sit with ABC and NBC and CBS and they were all, and I actually didn't like any of them. And I didn't want to get typed as a comedy actress. What did so that I mean at the time on. to you to be typecast as a comedic actress? What did that? How did it limit you at that in that in your mind at that time? It, it just seemed to me that then I would not be able to do the the dramatic roles that I really wanted to do. I just didn't want to get typed that. And it seemed to me that actresses who were in comedy series, you know, uh, leads in them that's the way they got typed. And uh, Mary Tyler Moore, do you know what I mean? I mean, she never did a dramatic role until way later yeah. in her career. So I didn't want that. I wanted, I wanted to have more choices. Looking back on it, I shouldn't have been as adamant about it as I was because <laughs> then nobody, after a while, knew that I could do comedy and no one would hire me for a comedy. So I went, oh, shit. What was it like working with Woody Allen? Odd. He's an odd fellow. <laughs> yeah, sure. Very odd. We were out of town with the in Boston with the play to begin with, and they were doing a lot of rewrites and stuff like that. As the understudy, I never got to know him very well and, and doing this ridiculous small part, which I didn't have any lines. I just thought he was odd and and somewhat difficult in that he wasn't very communicative. He was young then too. He yeah. was, yeah, yeah. He was. He had not not achieved anywhere near what he went on to achieve in his yeah. career. Yeah. Okay, so we're doing we're traveling around. We're doing these acting, dancing things with the cars, and you're getting paid. Yeah. So still no struggle, really, to speak of. You have had now. The reason I use the word struggle is in your business. It's so common for people to have, you know, to have a hard time getting work. But I know that hasn't happened. No, well, no. You know, I didn't always have all the work I wanted. I managed to get by on, you know, and I certainly, you know, wasn't 
living a, a luxurious right. style of living. But you weren't starving. Right. What was New York like then? I loved it. I just loved it. Yeah. I walk out of my house in my apartment every morning. I go, I'm in New York. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just was the energy, the vibe, everything about it was exciting. And I think I had just gotten an agent then in New York. And the way I got an agent was there was a list. Equity would give you a list of agents in New York. And I started at the A's, <laughs> going around, taking my picture and giving it to the agent or the secretary or whoever would take it. And I got an agent in the B's. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jane Broder was the agent's name. And she was a fairly, she was a pretty good agent. How did that conversation go? Hi. <laughs> well, I, I went in, I and I think she was there, and I met with her, and, you know, she liked me. Was she your agent for a long time? Yeah. Then she started sending me out on things, and I think she sent me out on the Don't Drink the Water and other things. And then I got a soap opera. What soap was it? Secret Storm. Oh, I remember that. I have watched General Hospital every <laughs> single day, I swear to God, every single day for at least 30 years, maybe oh more. Oh, my God. Really? When I was a, uh, I swear to God, nobody can believe this. I tell that at every speech I give, every public speech I give. <laughs> She's I a top-rated female wealth manager in the United States, and she watches General Hospital every day. day. <laughs> I used to, when I started, I have four sons that were born inside of six years, and I was working as a banker. And I went to work at 5 o'clock in the morning. And I would come home before I became mom. You know, it was like the transition of being, you know, banker by day, uh -huh. mom by night. And I would come home. And in those days, we had VCRs and you had to tape them. You know, you had to figure out a way to get them to fast forward. <laughs> right. And I watched the stories that were interesting to me. You know, I would like watch 30 or 35 minutes of them. And then I'd put on my leggings and my grungy sweatshirts, pick up my kids at school. And, you know, it was the baseball mom, the soccer mom, the everything, you know, and that's what I did. And I, and I still to this day watch General Hospital every single day. And it's the greatest, it's like a it's like a transitional period for me. And I really enjoy it. And so, so the Secret Storm. But was I remember a, Secret Storm. Was it really? a little racier? What was it? What was the sort of positioning well, of it? It was funny because there was a woman director, but which I think she was the only one around then, called Gloria Monte. And she cast me in it. And I played a character, believe it or not, called Rocket. That was the only name she had. <laughs> Rocket. She was a nightclub singer. I sing about as well as most dancers do, which is not good. <laughs> but she cast me as it, and I had to actually sing on the air. Very bizarre. Somebody found recently some tape of that, and I, and I saw it. Oh, my God. <laughs> is it just so bad or so... It's just so weird. <laughs> so weird. First of all, I had so much hair. I had like this bright, bright blonde hair that came down in a flip like this. I mean, it was just flip straight up. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so I played Rocket for about I guess, six to nine months. I'm not sure. And then she got, she got shot. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but in the meantime, Gloria Monte was a big supporter of mine. She just, you know, loved me. So which was really nice because she was very connected in a lot of ways. She was really a pioneer. Yeah. 
And, the, and in, you got that experience of day in and day out having to learn lines and because soaps are amazing for training people to be able to just jump in and learn their material. And, absolutely. The way they do soaps now, General Hospital or, or any of them, because there's there aren't only that f- many left. There's only four left. There used to be 15. Um, but the way they do them now, they, they do two you. and three shows a day. The, when I just did General Hospital and uh, those two days, we shot it in one day, and there were 39 pages of dialogue. When I went back to do it, I said, they, they contacted me months in advance. I said, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it, because I had told them I didn't want to come back to, to the show. So I said, yeah, yeah, a couple of days, fine. I thought I'd be dead on the show. And I'd just be lying there in a box or something, <laughs> or I would be dying. And, you know, lo and behold, I get the script is 39 pages of dialogue. I went, come on, you guys. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, that's why it's it's too hard. When we did it back then, you'd have, you'd come in the day before, You'd run through it. You'd have a table read. You'd put it on his feet in the rehearsal room. You'd, you'd work with the director, with the other actors. You had hours before the day. Then the next day, you'd come in and you'd, you know, work it on the set. So you had some time to rehearse. We thought then it went fast, but nothing like what they do today. So yeah, it, there's it not was a lot of money in that business anymore. I, I'm, I no. don't know this factually, but I'm sure that the size of the soap opera audience is compressed a lot. You're, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. Yeah. I may be the only person who watches PH. <laughs> they may be just making it for me. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Didn't I tell you? They are. <laughs> no, it's, you know, there, there's a loyal group like you who just, if those shows go off the air, I don't know what they'll do. Yeah. You know, I mean, they're, they're so dedicated. So just the way you watch television, everything is different now. So the ones that have stay on, but that's why they have to do them so quickly now because they, they're given less and less and less money to mm-hmm. do them. Mm-hmm. Now, per, while you're traveling along and you seem hell-bent to be working, which is fantastic quality, I love that. Oh, yeah. Were, what was your personal life like? Oh, Dating, that. guy, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, that. Um, I mean, you sound really like, you know, you, you, this was what you were doing and nothing was going to get in your way. Oh, I was driven. Definitely driven. I was laser beam focused. Uh, I did have a, a boyfriend back kind of in this New York era. He was a dancer also and a very handsome Italian guy. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a we had a good relationship for quite a while until I moved out here. And then it kind of fell apart. What was the impetus that got you from New York to California? Did you want to come to California or were you happily nested in New York? Oh, I wanted to come to California. I was always looking to step up. (laughs) (laughs) Not that California is so much better, but for what I wanted to do at that point, I wanted to do television. I wanted to do movies. I wanted, and there was more of that out here than there was in New York. But I was doing another soap opera by that time, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Mm. Don't tell me you never watched that one. (laughs) Yes? Okay. And that one I put on the air. In other words, I was the original cast when it went on the air. It was put on the air in 1960, I don't know, seven or eight, something like that. And it was a big deal at that time, too. 
the daytime programming supported the nighttime programming. Mm-hmm. That's where they made their money in the daytime. Soap powder was being advertised during the day, and yes, and that revenue. was what financed the nighttime. So we were very important as daytime as a daytime show. What network and was that at? They were both CBS, and Fred Silverman was the head of daytime programming then, and. It was basically the story of the movie, Love is a Many Splendid Thing, except after the first season, they called up and they said, get rid of the Asian. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, but that's not me. I didn't say it, but that's what they said. Because there were me and my sister, Leslie Charlson played my sister. We played sisters and we ended up being the most popular on the show. They liked our storyline and stuff like that. I'd only signed a year contract. After the first year... I took Leslie aside and I said, Leslie, they can do without one of us. They can't do without both of us. Let's negotiate together. That was we did. Wow, look at you. This is what strikes me about you just generally across your career is how savvy. You're very savvy and very, you do it in a, a very light and lovely way, but you're very, very savvy. Thank you. Thank you. That's I, a really cool story about how you understood. You looked at that situation and figured it out. When I see casts, that's what the cast of um, Friends did. That's what the cast of uh, Seinfeld did. So we went and we negotiated. And what we negotiated was whatever money it was. I don't remember that. But that they would guarantee us, I think it was two nighttime shows a year. They would fly us out. We might have to audition for them. They might just cast us, whatever. But they would guarantee us two nighttime shows a year. And that's what I wanted. I wanted that entree. You created your own path. Yeah. The first show, well, actually it was the second show that I did that they sent me out for was Dan August with Burt Reynolds. Oh, yeah. It was terrific. I had a great time. He was lovely, really, really nice to work with. Wonderful. I went back to New York and I gave him notice on the soap because I knew I wanted to come out here. I didn't have anything to come out to, but I knew I wanted to. In the meantime, I get a call from my agent saying, you just got a movie with Clint Eastwood. I went, huh? What? (laughs) (laughs) And and I said, how did I do that? I didn't meet him. I never auditioned (laughs) for him. Turns out he and Burt Reynolds were kind of buds. They ran into each other in a bar one night. Clint says, I'm looking for a girl in this movie I'm doing. Play Misty for me. I can't find anybody I like. Burt says... I just work with this girl from New York. You might like her. Showed him the dailies. He hired me right from that. Wow. <laughs> I know. That's amazing. Like, wow. that, that's an amazing call to get. Hi. <laughs> We're going to put you with Clint. Yeah. It was like, I couldn't believe it. Wow. It was a good thing I had given notice before that because I finished on a Friday, flew to California, wardrobed here in Los Angeles, uh, Saturday and Sunday, flew to Carmel Sunday night and Monday morning. I met him in the bar Sunday night, first time. And Monday morning, we started shooting. Wow. I what remember that movie. It? Play Misty for Play me. Play Misty for me. Play Misty. Oh. It's a very dark movie, visually, very it's, dark I, movie. I haven't really seen it in a long time, but people keep seeing it over and over again and love it. It's, it's a very good movie. He was... That was his first directorial effort. Yes. And he's a very good director. He knows exactly yeah, clearly, what he yeah. wants. And, his you know. body of work is amazing. Yeah. yeah. Very handsome. Very sweet. Really, I, I 
liked him very the much. Gentleman. Yeah. Um, yes. Okay, so now you've segued with almost effortlessly from being a star of a soap opera to now being directed by Clint Eastwood, which yeah. is amazing. Now, and did you move at this point to California? Yes. I left New York so fast. People said, well, why didn't you become a movie star? Uh, nobody offered me a movie right after that. And when Play Misty for me came out, it wasn't a huge hit. Because I think people wanted to see Clint with a gun as opposed to a microphone. He yeah. played a DJ. It was more of an art film. Yeah. And so it wasn't a huge hit. So therefore, that didn't translate for me into movie star. Mm -hmm. Had it been a huge hit, it yeah. probably would have. Box office follows that kind of a trajectory. Yeah. yeah. And you didn't have the box office. No. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, it was a huge break, and it was a wonderful thing for me, but it didn't have that. So television was more what I was being sent on, you know. You had guest roles on everything. Yeah, yeah, I did a lot of it. And, but the first thing I—one of the first things after Misty was a, a series called The Good Life with Larry Hagman. It was a comedy. It was a half-hour comedy with Hermione Badley, David Wayne, Danny Goldman. Uh, it's a very— cute, funny show. It only lasted one season because it was on opposite All in the Family. Oh, mm. <laughs> Hello. man. Thank you. Change our time slot. No. Yeah. <laughs> it really was. Well, a, that a show sh was a killer for everybody. I yeah. loved it. I would rather watch that yeah. than my show. But <laughs> the audience of that show was immense. Yeah. I yeah. don't think did anything anybody had ever seen anything before or since an yeah. audience that size. Yeah. And then after that, I was looking to do more drama. That's when I started doing a lot of guest roles. Guest, yeah. you know. So some of the names are Six Million Dollar Man, Hawaii Five-O, Love Boat, Chips, the FBI, Quincy, M.E. I did the first girl-to-girl -girl kiss ever on television. Wow. Oh, my God. Look at you, you trendsetter, you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you yeah. firebrand. I know. <laughs> do you remember doing it? Yeah. And Who I was can't, it? I can't remember the girl. She had very soft lips, though. <laughs> <laughs> that must have been so risque when that happened. It was. It was. And it, I, I can't even remember exactly. I think we were in prison together, she and I. <laughs> Let's go back to your career, though. Knots Landing. We can't, like, yeah, we're not get any further that. along in this we're not interview. Not oh, there's that. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Knots Landing. Uh, Kim, our executive producer, one of our executive producers, is a huge fan. Uh. Huge fan. I myself did not watch the show, I have to confess. <laughs> I do remember, what I remember about you in the show is you were nobody's fool. You were tough as nails. You were, you had these iconic shoulder pads <laughs> And eye makeup is what I remember, and the hair, and the sort of, you know. Yep. I got Knott's Landing when I was 40. Oh, wow. wow. You look so much younger. Yeah, you it. look like you oh were in your God, late you 20s. You look like you're 20. You still seven. look like you're in your late 20s, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe 30. <laughs> you really have that, that youth gene. You look the same. Oh, thank you. You really do. Oh, it's kind of you. incredible. I mean, you look, you don't look like you've done anything either. You look just the same. <laughs> did you know, well, I mean, obviously you found, you knew that it became a big hit, but did you know it at the beginning that the show had potential to become what it became? That show ran for almost 10 years. Yeah. When, <laughs> when I saw the audition for it, I'd never, it had been on already a season, but I'd never watched it. And it was called Knots Landing. I honestly thought 
it was a show with Andy Griffith about a houseboat. (laughs) 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 I swear. I didn't know what it was. So when then when I found out and I saw the role, I saw a breakdown of the role, I told my agent, I want that role. And actually, one of the producers was somebody who I knew. So my agent called them up and they said, oh, no, we love Donna. It's fine. She doesn't have to come in and read. No, no, it's okay. And I said, if I don't go in and read, I will not get this role. They don't see me that way. I have to prove that I can be that. So you understood you had to translate yourself into the role. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I knew that they'd never hire me. It would have been a lot easier not to have to go in to read, but I knew they wouldn't do it. So I made, I badgered him until he badgered them into letting me go in. And I went in and, and I and I read and an hour later they called me and said, you have the role. Wow. Did you have any idea it would last that long? No, no. As I said, I'd never even watched the show. I didn't even know what, what it was about. about the role captured your intense desire to play it? Yeah. You know, I mean, I think Abby helped me and I helped Abby. Do you know what I mean? I mean, playing that role helped me to be even more assertive, even more determined. I was that way somewhat to begin with, but even more so because of her. You know, you play a role like that, it gets in you, you know, it really does, which was so much fun. (laughs) I bet. I bet. I mean, some of your zingers like, don't call me cookie or whatever. (laughs) You know, like there are all these lines where, you know, the sort of vernacular would drop and time would go by and you would almost be just waiting (laughs) to hear what the comeback was. And it wouldn't always come immediately, but it would always come. Yeah. She defended herself at every turn. Yeah. And she got the outcome she wanted a lot, not all the time, but. You know, I credit that to the writing and the producing on that show. One of the things that we got to do is, in the first couple of years anyway that I was on, we would go once a week to the producer's office for lunch and read through the next script with the writers there. So we got to put have our input, the actors, because there were very good actors on that show. So, Will you name those actors for our audience just to remind people? Oh, yeah. Um, Joan Van Ark, Michelle Lee, Bill Devane, Ted Shackelford, Julie Harris— I mean, Alec Baldwin. Alec was on for like three years. You know, just a really good company of actors. And the producers recognized that and recognized that we had had valuable input into our characters on the show. And so they let us have it. I think the writers were really good, but I think they were enhanced by what we brought to them. And it was, a, it was a wonderful collaboration. It was a wonderful way to be able to work. I loved it. It was really fun. Is that what also drove you to some degree to starting having your own productions and, and moving in that direction? Yeah. The first role, the first movies that I did that, that I produced, they were because I wanted to say something. There were movies about something. One was called Runaway Father. One was called My Name is Kate. I mean, they were, they were about problems, and I wanted that voice. I wanted to be able to say those things. I also, as a producer, wanted to be able to have control over my image that went out, what I said and what I did. And as a producer, I could do that, you know. 
and I had control over the editing and mm-hmm. you know all that kind of stuff and I and I really I really liked that so that what I put out with those was exactly what I wanted it to be sometimes with other movies that I did it wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be cuz I didn't have any right to say mm-hmm. so getting that balance was the next sort of part of your growth professionally yeah. was figuring out that balance it was terrific there was a time when I had movie commitments I had four movie commitments with CBS to my production company. I had three with ABC, and I think I had two with NBC. Per year? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work. Yep. Yep. That's a lot of work, woman. And, but those, they don't do it anymore because yeah. they don't do movies for television like that. But yeah, I, I mean, it meant that I, you know, was going to get those movies done. And so everybody would come to me with scripts because I had the power to get a movie done which was a nice place to be. You began producing fairly early in your career. So you obviously were a person who should not be underestimated. What was that like for you? Well, of course, now I look back and, and think I, could, I should have done more. I could have done more. While I was doing nuts, I tried to take every opportunity that I had. And it's what I tell my daughter. I don't care what the opportunity looks like. It might not look like much now. But if it's an opportunity, take it. Don't pass it by. And that's what I try to do. Just take opportunities. It's interesting that your work as a character helped to enhance your your sort of gutsiness professionally. It did. I mean, playing that character really gave me a confidence that I don't think I would have had otherwise. You know, and that was a wonderful thing to be Mm -hmm. able to. I wish that I had, I wish I could do more. Based upon what we've been researching you today, you've worked your whole life. I mean, there's really never been a period of time where you weren't. The only period of time that I didn't work a lot was when I had my daughter. And that was by design. Yeah. uh, I mean, I didn't want to. For the first maybe three years of her life, I did a bunch of movies for television because I could take her with me, you know. And But once she was in school, I wasn't going to leave. I wasn't going to go out of town. For And saying you're not going to go out of town kind of cuts off, yeah. you know, your movie, your movie for television career because most of them are done either in Canada or Georgia or, you know, very few done here. How did you come to become Chloe's mom? What was the story of that? Uh, hmm. Tears me up because actually this morning was the, it was the sweetest thing. We were on FaceTime. She lives in New York. She's modeling in New York. And we're on FaceTime and there was a big close-up of her like this and and FaceTime. And she said, bye, honey. I love you. Bye. And I press the thing and up pops my screen server, which is a huge close-up of her as a baby. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh. oh wow. Wow. <laughs> where did that time go? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. You know, I was 54 when I adopted her. I just decided that that's what I wanted to do. That's a big change as a baby. Wow. Yeah, she was a... four days old. Oh, my wow. goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I've been having dreams about little babies recently and it's just such a <laughs> such a unbelievable time yeah. to be with a baby that little. Yeah. To make that connection. The that beautiful connection. Best. Talk best, a little best. bit about the work that you're doing as an activist and the and the causes that you support. Oh goodness. There are many. The first thing that I started out with when I was here was a group called Echo. 
Earth Communications Office. And it was basically a, a group of industry people who said the studios are just terrible. So they started recycling programs and all kinds of programs at the studios to make them be greener, which was very successful, and we did a lot of good work there. I've worked with tree people. I've worked with uh, Environment America, Environment California, so many different ones that I've, you know, either done things for or had events at my house. There's one now that's looming really large for me because it it was my first environmental, so to speak, interest back when I was even in college and that, and that's nuclear, anti-nuclear. Proliferation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think we kind of thought we had it. We had it done. It was, we were okay. And we're not. I met some people recently who spend a lot of time in Russia and said the Russian nuclear threat is bigger and worse than ever, but nobody's talking about it. I'm actually having an event for them December 1st. Above all, for me, that's the most important because that's the ability to annihilate the earth. It is. Unfortunately, though, because to everything there's an opposite and equal reaction, there's also a lot of benefit from nuclear if they can figure out a way not to make it so destructive, but to use it for power and I know things that, which by the way, is very clean power. So there are two sides of that conversation. And um, unfortunately, the the bad one is far worse than the good one. Yeah, that's what I feel. I feel like the, the bad scenario, the badness of nuclear doesn't make it okay. Yeah, I mean, look at uh, North Korea. I mean, they're they're flipping off rockets like, <clears throat> you know, oh, here, let's throw up another one up in the air and see what happens. And yeah. And so, if, you know, the kinds of, and we've had some of them, accidents, Chernobyl, you know, Three Mile, three mile those island. kind of things, they they happen. And as the nuclear stockpile gets older and decays and all that kind of stuff, it gets more and more dangerous. Yeah. Is the organization focused on maintaining the protective measures around nuclear power and weapons and stuff or what what is it's it's actually it's actually what we're going to find out about if you guys want to come okay, okay. <laughs> um it, it's just a it's it's an informational i'd kind really of, like to come yeah. okay I'm very interested in the topic yeah yeah me too so i only spoke to these people once my friend sarah nichols knows them and told me about them and i only met them once kind of briefly but i was like fascinated with them. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're going to do on December 1st. We're going to see what their recommendations are for what can be done Mm -hmm. and how we can help facilitate that. Fascinating. So let's go back to you. So tell (laughs) me, what are your days like now? What are you doing now besides the working and doing the charitable work you're doing and the activism? I'm still working. Yeah. Tell what are you doing? Doing some of the most bizarre things. Um, (laughs) You were in Joy, which was an Academy... Yeah. Uh, award-nominated yeah. film. That was the most bizarre thing. That it was happened. while I was doing General Hospital mm-hmm. a few years ago. I remember. And uh, <laughs> you, won an, you won an award for when you were on GH. I did. Yeah. I won an I Emmy. Remember. Yeah. yeah, of all things. I love GH. <laughs> <laughs> I'm addicted. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I was doing GH and, and doing um, something called Queens of Drama, which is, was a reality show that I did 
which I, I only did for one season, but it was really fun. My agent called me up and said, David O. Russell is looking for you. I went, huh? It was kind <laughs> of like that, you got a movie with Clint Eastwood thing. What? Um, really? Yeah, he, he's, he's, he wants to talk to you. He's looking all over for you. I said, okay. And so he hired me for, you know, to do that little soap opera piece in the, in the movie, which I thought was a brilliant concept of how he did that and how that affected uh, the mother's life and all that. And, you know, that was a huge budget movie. So I went to Boston twice. They flew me there. I was there for a week each time. I, I mean, wow. so much money was spent on that little <laughs> piece of film. <laughs> Must have been extraordinary working with him, I would imagine. Yeah. He's a what genius. A talented guy. In, in my opinion, he's a genius. Odd, not I, see. I read for the mother in that uh, in, but I didn't get that role. But he put me in the in the soap opera thing. But I went in to read with him, and he brought Jennifer Lawrence in to read with me, which was really nice. It wasn't like a read. There was no script or anything. He'd just say, "Sit on the couch and pretend that you're." sad and you're crying and then get up and fall on the floor and all these bizarre things. That's your daughter and she's this and talk to her me. Just improvising. Improvising. You know, and it was like, and I can do improv. I'm fairly good at that. So it was all fine. And then he got a phone call and he had to leave the room and Jennifer said to me, Honey, I know this seems really weird, she said, but just trust him. She said, uh, the first movie I did with him, I left the last day of that movie, went home and said, I'm never going to work again. This is the worst thing I've ever done. I don't know. And she won an Academy Award for it. Wow. So she said, just <laughs> trust him because he talks all the time while he's shooting. While you're doing a scene, he's talking. Oh my God! How does that work? That's with what the I mean. Sound? Not everybody can work with that. You know, I mean, it's not an easy thing to do. But I think he's a genius. I really do. Wow. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so sweet of her to try and <laughs> tell <laughs> me, you. you know, about that because she had to know. I was like, this is weird. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Well, you've had a long and storied career, and I don't want to finish the interview without talking about the fact that you have a long relationship with a lovely man. I do. I do, a lovely man, Larry. <laughs> yep, which, you know, it's been, I guess, 17 years now. It's a long time. Although I've been married for 42 years, everything, everything seems <laughs> you know, real. How'd you a, meet Larry Gilman? Yeah, that's... Back in, uh, whenever it was that we uh, met, I was doing, uh, I represented Celebrex. Uh, as mm -hmm. a celebration. Anti-inflammatory. Yeah. And um, they just hired me, and I was going to go out and do a tour where I'd go on morning shows and this and that and talk about it and because I had a mild arthritis at the time and how it was helping me and all that. And so they called me up and they said, you know, you're going out on the tour. We need to have you have some media training. And I went, Really? I've done like 500 <laughs> interviews. Why would I need media training? They said, well, it's different when there's a product involved. Said, okay, okay, I'll go. 
So lo and behold, the media trainer was this very cute guy, <laughs> Larry Gilman. <laughs> and we got on famously. I mean, we, you know, just kind of hit it off. But then, you know, I left the media training and he had given me his card. And I thought, well, I hope he calls me. <laughs> But he didn't. Oh, you had a little heart pitter patter. Huh? Yes. Aww. And he didn't call and he didn't call and he didn't call. And I'm kind of disappointed. And he's on the other side going, I was hoping she would call me. He I didn't he away. didn't think that it was proper for him mm. to call me, you know, as the as the media trainer and, and all that. He didn't think that was proper. But he was hoping I would call him. Well, I wasn't gonna call him. No. Then we're girls. We don't make the first phone call. Right. Unfortunately, 9-11 happened right when I was supposed to go out on tour. So they canceled everything, naturally. Nobody went anywhere. Nobody did anything. About three months later, they said, you know, we were going to send you out on the road. Now, just maybe you have a little brush up on your media training. I said, well, okay, but if I can have the same media trainer. <laughs> <laughs> That's so smart. That's awesome. <laughs> and they said, oh, well, okay, we'll try and get him. So I went and, you know, there he was. And we did our media training. At the time, my kitchen was being redone. So I was staying in an apartment building thing. And I thought, I'm not going to let this guy get away this time. So he was going to his car, and I said to the people from the company, I said, you know what? It's really hard to find the parking here. Let me just go show him where it is. And we <laughs> walked good. out together, and, I, and, he, and we got to his car. He said, you know, I really have been wanting to call you, but I didn't think it was proper, and I wanted to ask you out. And I said, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and so oh, then we finally so got together. Oh, that. that is such a great story. <laughs> I love that. And you have such a wonderful smile on your face, oh, which the audience so needs to know about because it's just, it's funny how that sometimes, you know, you just know. Yeah. You just yes. know. Yeah. We just had a connection, you know, right away. Just, and he's, he's a really good person, you know, just a really good guy. So now, is there really anything nice. that you have in your mind that you have wanted to do that you haven't done yet? Oh, yeah. There's stories I want to tell. There's movies I want to do. There's There are things that I feel very discouraged about now that I don't know how we're going to get around it, but, but things to make the environment, make the country better for my daughter, yeah. for well, all our kids, for, you know— I don't want to pass it on. I don't want to pass this on, what's going on yeah. right now. So I want to be able to help that. So, yeah. you know, wow. there's a lot of, lot to be done. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Thanks, Donna. It's really you interesting. You guys so are much. fun. Thank you. <laughs> I love that. Next time, you're going to meet Andy Schoen, a trailblazing media and entertainment executive with a career that spans radio, music, television, and digital media. At 16, he was the youngest radio announcer in the U.S. By age 18, he was working at Seattle's legendary rock station, KISW, where he was known as the Boy Wonder. As program director of America's number one music station, KROQ, he developed The Kevin and Bean Show, the most successful morning show in L.A. radio history. 
MTV hijacked his radio career and he spent most of the 90s as head of programming at MTV, later adding VH1, and leading the team that created and launched MTV2. He brought the first celebrity reality show to TV, The Rodman World Tour, starring Dennis Rodman and launched and founded two more cable networks, including Revolt TV, with his friend Sean Diddy Combs. And when the internet was born, he helped bring music to it as founder and CEO of the first commercial music subscription service called Press Play, a predecessor to both Spotify and iTunes. Now he's co-founded and is building a global streaming media and information company called Speaker, launching in 2019. So join us for an impressive media journey when we rewind to the beginning with Andy Schoen on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 